It will be a relatively long talk with some video clips, so I hope not too boring. Let me begin. I want to begin with a well-known scene from Hitchcock's rather, Alfred Hitchcock's rather bad film, Torn Curtain, from 1966. The only out outstanding scene in the film is that of the murder of Gromek, uh, Stasi, Staatssicherheit, East German secret police officer, who suspects that Armstrong, played by Paul Newman, the movie's hero, did not sincerely defect to the East. So Gromek follows Armstrong to a lone farm where Armstrong went to make preparations to return to the West. Gromek realizes that Armstrong is a double agent, and as he is calling the police, a tortuous struggle begins that ends with Gromek being brutally slain by Armstrong. Uh, the by far best scene in the movie, which, as Hitchcock put it, uh, shows how difficult it is to, to kill a man. Gromek's head is pushed into a gas oven where he slowly suffocates, desperately waving his hands. Can we have the first? It's four minutes long, but you will see what I will deduce, draw from that scene. Why did I show you this clip? My point has nothing to do with the content, but I want to <laughs> draw your attention to a shocking fact that I discovered only recently. Gromek, the bad guy, is played by Wolfgang Kieling, who was at that time a well-known West German movie and TV star. He acted also in some other Hollywood productions, and here comes the surprise. During the post-production of this movie in Hollywood in late, uh, in August of 1965, uh, the so-called Watts race riots took place, which were brutally suppressed by the police. There were around 50 people dead. And you know what happened in real life? Killing the actor became disgusted with American society, and as a result, after the film was released, he defected to East Germany in real life, calling the United States, quote, the most dangerous enemy of humanity in the world today, guilty of crimes against uh, the blacks and the people of Vietnam, end of quote. The irony of his case is sublime, uh, sorry, supreme. The production of a movie about a fake defection to the East, to communist East Germany, led to an actual defection to East Germany. A truly dialectical approach to the Cold War, I think, has to give space also to such peculiarities which disturb the simple opposition of democracy and totalitarianism. Today's killings, not to kill, but Wolfgang killings, are precisely people like Assange or Snowden, who, although he didn't want to, found 
years ago, you remember, the only safe place to stay in Russia. He is well aware that the reasons have nothing to do with Russia's love of freedom, but these are paradoxes that we witness today. And such a, an approach is needed, again, especially today, when our disorientation is generalized. Events we should be ashamed of occur everywhere. But should we be ashamed? How does shame function today? In his two revelations on shame, the Austrian philosopher Robert Faller convincingly refutes two common notions the uh, two common notions about shame, shame as opposed to guilt. The idea that shame comes from outside in contrast to guilt, which is your inner feeling, and that shame comes from my failure, from being not good enough. Guilt comes in different grades. It involves rational argumentation, counter argumentation and the possibility of pardon. While shame overwhelms us all of a sudden, we just wish to disappear, no rational way out is offered to us. Now, Faller demonstrates how the role of shame changed in today's culture. Shame is no longer the shame of failure or weakness, but the shame of an obscene too much, too muchness which can be success itself. I am not ashamed of my lack or insufficiency. I myself appear to myself as an obscene excess, an element out of place. I just want to disappear, sink into ground because I'm too fat, because I emit flatulences in public, whatever you want. So the subject perceives itself as an obscene excess as an element that lacks its own place in the symbolic order which defines the coordinates of our reality. Shame is not triggered by uh, not enough, but by uh, too much, it comes from below, not from above. This is also why the weird agency of what Faller called innocent observer is an agent uh, of pure appearance, and the duty of our ego is to maintain the appearances, to prevent that the innocent observer will notice them. What do I mean by this? Faller deploys the functioning of this innocent observer perfectly. A quote, shame doesn't arise when all know about a painful matter. Shame bursts out only when an as-if, as if we don't know, breaks down. When the attempt to maintain a public secret fails, shame arises in everybody who is present." End of quote. This means that shame is not simply external. I can feel ashamed also when I am alone. What we call manners or tact means that we learn to pretend that the big other didn't notice the disturbing element. This role of the innocent observer, the guardian of appearances, 
also accounts for the strange fact that I can feel shame for others who should be ashamed of themselves. When the innocent observer registers the excess, we all who uh, we all feel equally ashamed since it became obvious that we all knew the reality and just discreetly ignored it. Again, let me further uh, uh, clarify this. Let's say that somebody in a closed social circle, like behind the large table, does something socially inappropriate, like emit a loud flatulence. The proper thing to do is not to smile at him kindly with the message, okay, you did it, no problem. The proper thing is to ignore it totally, to go on as if nothing happened. Now, uh, what do I mean by this agency of pure appearance? You were, I was often in a situation, let's say, again, there are four or five people, and you know something dirty, traumatic about one of the persons there. You know, and you know that everybody else knows, and they all know that everybody knows. But nonetheless, the moment you mention publicly this fact, Everybody is ashamed. This is the best case, I think, or example of what Lacan means by the big other, the agent of appearances. Now let's go to politics. Stalinism is perhaps the clearest political case of such an innocent observer. We all know how absolutely crucial appearances were in Stalinism. The Stalinist regime reacted with total panic whenever there was a threat that appearances will be disturbed. Let me just recall why it, I wonder if you knew this, what, why it never rained during the 1st of May parades in Moscow in Stalinist times. The authorities feared that the rain disturbing the parade would be perceived as an indication that the Communist Party is not all powerful. So they sprayed the sky above Moscow with gases which prevent the formation of clouds. What characterizes Stalinism is precisely this conjunction of raw, brutal terror and the need to protect appearances. Even if we all know something is not true, the big other of appearances should not notice it. That's why the 50, from 1956, the 20th Congress of Communist Party, when Khrushchev rendered publicly some of the Stalinist crimes, was such a trauma. You know that there were doctors, uh, 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 doctors in the background uh, and carefully controlling it. There were six to seven direct heart attacks. But why? Nobody learned anything new. The shock was that this was rendered public. So where are we with this today? Uh, let me take a recent example. Maybe you know this clip from China. The process of choosing seven members of the Standing Committee of the Politburo, the real seat of power in today's China, is totally obscure. It happens behind closed doors. But at the last Congress, 
Now, a couple of weeks ago, uh, an unexpected crack appeared in this monolithic edifice. The former, before Xi, Chinese president Hu Yintao, Xi Jinping's predecessor as the party leader, was unceremoniously dragged off stage shortly after foreign media came in. He looks disoriented and, as two assistants help him stand, he speaks briefly with Xi, whom he had been sitting next to in the front row. Don't be afraid, this is one minute, even less. Why I found this almost an historical event? Although the official comment just mentioned afterwards the bad health and momentary weakness or of who, who is dragged out, whose resistance and defiance were clearly visible. For a moment, the smooth appearance was disturbed. Why did this happen? There is, and discreetly friends from China told me this, it wasn't that who was resisted, she's total power and wanted to protest. No, it was all states. So I like this point that the very disturbance of perfect appearance was staged. Uh, the first indication is that uh, this incident occurred one minute after cameras for, from international TV were, were, were uh, turned on so that the whole world saw it. So the mask of appearance did not fall down. It was intentionally taken down. He himself staged this incident to render visible his brutal power. However, this reading indicates that the new Chinese leadership can no longer cling to, to undisturbed appearances. It has to disturb them to assert its full authority. Again, I think this is a very pessimist sign because, you know, Chinese were really uh, uh, obsessed by undisturbed appearance. To give you another example, you know the big introductory at the beginning parade, uh, which took place a couple of years ago, six, seven, when there were the Summer Olympics in Beijing. They were staged by, by Zhang Qimou, Maybe you know him, the popular Chinese movie director who did uh, Hero and other movies. But you know what's the shock? The Chinese were the party. They were so afraid that something will go wrong and disturb the appearance that while the real parade went on, what the world saw on TV was a pre-recording of earlier staging of the same parade, so that they could be absolutely sure that nothing will go wrong. So let me go on. Uh, so they wanted to, they experienced if the, the, if the, the perfect appearance is disturbed, it's shame, it's total shame, it shouldn't happen. And again, as I already said, this is what I found nonetheless fascinating, especially with regard to what goes on today 
in, uh, in, uh, in uh, classical communism. Again, as I already said, it's extremely brutal, but at the same time, it's incredibly afraid of the slightest disturbance. And I, I had, when I was much younger, in late 70s, I was the editor, one of the co-editors of a journal, and we published some poem. We thought nothing special, but then some lines, it was possible to read them as a veiled critique of the Communist Party. And there was a special meeting of the Central Committee. There was a panic in the party. No wonder, I think it was Brodsky, the Russian emigrant poet, who said, and in some sense, it's not just a cynical joke, it's true that in, at no time in human history, poetry was held at a such high place than in Stalinism. People got shot for a wrong line in a poem and so on. The irony of my case was that if there would, were to be no panic from the party, nothing would have happened, nobody would have noted that, that stupid uh, poem. So now I come to the point that you mentioned. The excess which causes shame is profoundly linked to some kind of surplus enjoyment. I feel shame when doing something that I secretly enjoy, like and the same tasteless example, emitting flatulence. Plus, and this reflexive turn is crucial, I enjoy this shame itself. In some of his acts, but not all of them, Trump, Donald Trump, acts without shame. The liberal leftists feel shame for him. And this shame attributed to others is in itself a source of pleasure. I enjoy others feeling shame for what I am doing. However, Trump's shamelessness is not unlimited. Say, he would never shamelessly claim he is bisexual or gay. In his eyes, those whom he dismisses as non-patriotic should be ashamed of themselves. But in contrast to the liberal left, Trump would not feel himself ashamed on behalf of what the left is doing. And what about today's woke left? I think Fowler is right to point out that we often have shame instead of argumentation, a quote. Instead of a rebellious, enlightening left, ready to debate every question with its enemy, since it feels assured about its better arguments, now a fussing pseudo-left appears with fierce argumentative confrontation and wants to close the mouth, especially to its own people." End of quote. So I think the lesson of this is that shame is simply not reliable. You mentioned to me this afternoon uh, 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 in Mark Twain's Tom Sawyer. You remember that wonderful moment when Tom does a good thing. He helps, I think, the Huck black... Huck Finn. Sorry? Huck Finn. Ah, does this. Yeah, I was always on Huck Finn's side. He's bad, yeah? <laughs> he, he helps the, the uh, 
the, the black dream, the slave escape, but he feels ashamed of it. It's an obvious case of how uh, the truth is here on the side of his acts, not his inner feeling. So uh, we should move from shame to critical examination of the entire situation, including shame itself. Yes, the first step should be, it's horrible when you see no shame when something shameless is happening. But then we should go on. So let me give you an example of this, which again, there is nothing obscene violent, but it shocked me. On, now, uh, a week ago, on October 23rd, a video clip was released which reportedly shows the Russia's Chechen Republic leader, Ramzan Kadyrov, being given three Ukrainian prisoners of war by his teenage son. His teenage son, his three sons, 16, 14 years old, went, that's the official meet, as volunteers to Ukraine, and they got, uh, came back with three prisoners, and they give them as a present to his father. Short clip, very short clip. Is that a 16 years old kid gives his father three prisoners as a gift, as if prisoners of war are private property and even minors can own them. Plus, what I found most shocking is the fact that this is publicly, that this is recorded and publicly displayed. I mean, the question is how, how can something like this happen, this utter obscenity? But what about the Western woke left? Now comes trigger warning. You will probably not agree with what I will say. Towards the end of October of this year, Gonville and Caius College in Cambridge, Cambridge, not here, Massachusetts, uh, England, was hosting a talk by Helen Joyce, known for her view that men and women are being redefined by trans activists. With laws and policies uh, reshaped to privilege self-identified gender identity over biological sex. Joyce unambiguously supports trans rights. What she rejects is gender identity ideology. The idea that people should count as men or women according to how they feel and what they declare instead of their biology. Now, students at this college have launched protests with the college's LGBT plus representatives demanding that Joyce's appearance be canceled because they are unanimously disgusted by the platforming of such views. Tutors were even opening a safe space, welfare tea room for students during the talk, blaming understandable hurt and anger for many students, staff and fellows caused by this invitation. The college's master joined them saying that while freedom of speech is a fundamental 
principle on some issues which affect our which affect our community, we cannot stay neutral. Now, first, my theoretical position here. I disagree with both poles in this conflict because I think the opposition between biology and what I feel and declaring what I feel is not exhaustive. Where, and here is my criticism of some of this free choice of gender ideology, uh, where is Freud here? Where is the Freudian subject of, subject of the unconscious which is neither biological nor a matter of feeling. We become sexual subjects when our biological features get mediated by complex symbolic structures, structures which work at a different level than our feelings. No matter how sincere, feelings may deceive. But nonetheless, I think that debating the role of biology or social symbolic structures in the formation of our sexuality is a legitimate topic. How fragile the opponents of Joyce's appearance must be if they experience such a debate as something so threatening that they even need a safe space to protect them. Is it not that their refusal of debate betrays a fear that such a debate may render palpable the weakness of their position. Plus, are they aware that the logic of my identity is what I feel, if I feel a man, a woman, a trans, and I declare what I feel, can also be used in a directly racist and sexist way? A full-blooded heterosexist would also need a safe space to avoid LGBT plus persons by whom he is anonymously disgusted. I'm not agree with him. I just claim again that this idea of my identity is what I feel, immediately experience and declare, it, it proceeds as if there was no Freud, no divided subject, no psychoanalysis, and so on and so on. Duane Roussel, my Canadian friend, characterizes woke as racism in the time of the many without the one. This may appear problematic, but I think it hits the mark in an almost exact opposite to the traditional racism which fights against a foreign intruder posing a threat to the unity of the one, say, immigrants and Jews to our nation, Vogue reacts to those who are suspected not to truly abandon old forms of the one, patriots, proponents of patriarchal values, and so on. With all its declared opposition to the new forms of barbarism, the Vogue left fully participates in it, promoting and practicing a flat discourse without irony. Although it advocates pluralism and promotes difference, it, its subjective position of enunciation, the place from which it speaks, is extremely authoritarian, allowing no debate and imposing exclusions which are often based on arbitrary premises. In all this mess, 
we should always bear in mind that the woke stance and cancel culture are de facto limited to the narrow world of academia and up to a point some intellectual professions like journalists. While society at large moves in the opposite direction, cancel culture with its implicit paranoia is a desperate but also inefficient attempt to compensate for the actual troubles and tragedies of the LGBT plus individuals, the violence and exclusion to which they are permanently submitted. I'm well aware of this. But I think that precisely cancel culture is a retreat into a cultural fortress, a pseudo safe space whose discursive fanaticism leaves intact and even strengthens the resistance of the majority to it. So you got my point. I'm not attacking woke and cancel culture as being too fanatical and so on. I claim precisely that behind this mask of fanaticism, stringency, it's a compromise. It doesn't really change social reality. Now, on the opposite side, the hidden tension of the uh, conservatives who reject the idea that sexual identity is a discursive social construct becomes palpable. Where? In the panic with which they reject the project of the LGBT plus education, which should present to a child all options of sexual identity. They, conservatives, patriarchal, binary, and so on, they fear that if children are to be educated in this way, they might be influenced to betray their natural sex and choose some unnatural form. This is why recently Russia prohibited all gay and LGBT propaganda. In short, my, I don't know if it happens also in your country, it happens in my country all around Europe now, how again, conservatives are horrified by this idea if you teach young children about LGBT construction of sexual identity, that this may affect them and that they will effectively become gay, trans, and so on. But the paradox is clear here. They don't believe their own idea that sex is natural. If they were to believe it, they wouldn't, they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't be so afraid. Again, if one's sexual orientation is so easily changed by education, does this not imply that sexual identity is a social construct? So how to break out of this cycle? We got an, now comes the most problematic part, we got an unexpected hint from Ukraine where something happened recently, which may appear a step further in our moral decay, but I don't think so. I think it's the opposite. On October 13th, it was revealed that more than 15,000 Ukrainians have planned to organize a mass orgy in case Putin launches a nuclear attack on Ukraine. <laughs> this is not a joke. I checked it up with my Ukrainian friends. 
15,000 individuals have registered for this event, which is being called Orgy at Hekavitsa. Uh, 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 the mass event will be taking place, okay, now it will not, probably there will be no nuclear bomb, will be taking place in a predecided place on a hill in Hekavitsa, part of Kiev. People, it was well organized, people participating have been asked to decorate their hands with stripes denoting their sexual preference. If you want anal sex, you, uh, 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 you have three stripes on your hand. If you are interested in oral sex, you have four stripes and so on. The reaction of participants is those who registers it's noteworthy. One woman told a reporter, it's the opposite of despair. Even in the worst case scenario, people will look for something good. This is the mega optimism of Ukrainians. And similar groups popped up. For example, an orgy on, on Deribasivska Street in Odessa and so on. Now, one should take notion of collective orgy as a life-affirming project in the time of extreme despair. No need here for a deeper pseudo-Freudian analysis of the disintegration of civilized social links in a traumatic time. The truly non-civilized procedure is what Russia is doing, giving its soldiers Viagra to rape Ukrainian women. Uh, UN envoy Pramila Patton reported that rapes and sexual assaults attributed to Moscow's forces were part of Russia's military strategy. That's the true horror for me. How comes that Russia is doing this? Ah, we have to go a, li a little bit deeper. Simply, the rule is everything is permitted in the struggle called by Putin and his ideologists, Satanists. The term regularly used in the Russian media has to be taken seriously. Alexei Pavlov, Assistant Secretary of the Security Council of the Russian Federation, is now calling for the desatanization of Ukraine, saying that there were hundreds of sects in the countries of sects where citizens have abandoned orthodox values. Quote, I believe that with the continuation of our special military operation, it becomes more and more urgent to carry out the desatanization of Ukraine. The new regime turned Ukraine from a sovereign state to a totalitarian uh, hypersect. Putin echoes the same stance, quote from Putin. This is a complete denial of humanity, the overthrow of faith and traditional values. Indeed, the suppression of freedom itself has taken on the features of a religion, outright Satanism. End of quote. No wonder that Patriarch Kirill, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, called Putin a fighter against the Antichrist and chief 
uh, exorcist. Some people ask how Russia, still a normal state, can ally itself with fundamentalist Iran. But we can see now that, if anything, Russia is more fundamentalist than Iran. Now, I raise my stakes and make us go a step further. What is, I think, even more morbid than Russia's brutality and this open ideology of uh, uh, fighting Satanism, you know that now the goal, again, this is now official discourse in Russia, it's no longer denazify Ukraine, but de-satanize it. Uh, what is even more morbid for me are some leftist peaceniks working for peace, who claim that now it's the time to send a big European delegation to Russia to inquire and negotiate about the terms of peace. My comment. I hope you all know the well-known joke evoked by Freud on the borrowed kettle. First, I, let's say I borrow a kettle from you. I return it to you broken. And then you said, what, it's broken. And my defense is, first, I never borrowed a kettle from you. Second, I return it to you unbroken. Third, the kettle was already broken when I got it from you. Do those who oppose haplic Ukraine with arms not fall prey to a similar paradox? Their arguments clearly fall into three categories. First, abstract superego reasoning. Giving arms never stops the war. It's like pouring oil on fire. So it's always immoral and murderous. That's the abstract position. Then you have a more concrete listing of particular arguments. Okay, Russia committed a horrible crime by invading another state, but Ukraine is also not innocent, so we cannot put the blame only on one side, and so on and so on. And third, more and more popular in Europe and in United States, direct egotism. Why getting involved in a war far away, which will only hurt our interests and living standards? And let me make another argument against pacifism. Uh, yes, of course, my God, I am scared like shit of nuclear war. But at the same time, don't forget that all occupiers are sincerely always for peace. Peace means I want peace in the occupied territory, leave me alone. <coughs> Germany, when they occupied France in 1940, of course they wanted peace there. Uh, Israel on the West Bank. West Bank is a special case. I oppose terrorist attacks from Gaza or South Lebanon, but on the West Bank, of course, Israel wants peace, because peace means doing our job, gradual ethnic uh, cleansing of it. The Pisaniks, who are against NATO and sending arms to Ukraine, ignore the key fact that it was Western help that allowed Ukraine to resist. Without it, Ukraine would be long occupied. Uh, this help led to today's stalemate, which may be now created conditions for a possible compromise. So in Germany, I admire the stance of the Green Party, which not only advocates support 
for Ukraine, but also proposes the use of the ongoing oil and gas crisis as a unique opportunity to make our industries greener. You see, I like this stance. Most of us, for most of us, the problem is glass. Okay, it's traumatic, we should help them, but not too much. How will it disturb our way of life? We are used to live in a comfortable way. Is it, is it not a much better position to say, but why don't we use this situation to make our industries greener for an ecological turn and so on and so on? Uh, did you notice another inconsistency in those who want direct peace, which basically means put pressure on Ukraine to give one-third of their land to Russia? They first insisted that Ukraine simply cannot win a war against Russia. Chomsky, Varoufakis, they were all saying this, let's be realist, Ukraine cannot win. But now, when, at least for a moment, it's not yet over. Ukraine is winning the war. They repeat that it shouldn't be allowed to win or even to gain too much because this may provoke Putin's ire and he may press the button. Now, uh, what is the truth behind it? Recall how in the first days of the war, Western powers offered Zelensky, Ukrainian president, you remember, just two, three days into it, they offered him a, 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 a special plane to take him out of Kiev, implying that the situation is already lost, so let's get over it fast. This hysterical, precipitous offer made palpable the true desire of the West, a desire which was spoiled by the unexpected Ukrainian uh, resistance. Uh, uh, that's, for me, uh, 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 the truth. I wonder if you would agree with it. And I have many friends there that we in the West, all my political friends in Slovenia and France, I could feel the secret pleasure when, you know, in the first day there were already Russian commandos dropped onto Kiev. They thought, okay, okay, it will be soon over, then we will protest, but it will be over. The true bad surprise what Ukrainians really, they tell you this privately, not publicly, Ukrainians screwed up everything by their resistance. Couldn't they just swallow it and sacrifice themselves for our Western welfare and so on? So now our obsession is Let's make peace, but peace in such a way that Russia should be allowed to save face. What does this mean? Uh, Dmitry Medvedev, a former Russian president who now serves as deputy chairman of Russia's Security Council, recently said that, listen carefully, that the US-led NATO military alliance would be too scared of a nuclear apocalypse to directly enter the conflict in response to Russia using tactical nuclear weapons. Longer quote. I believe that NATO will not directly intervene in the conflict even in this situation. After all, the security of Washington, London, Brussels is much more important 
for the North Atlantic Alliance than the fate of a dying Ukraine that no one needs. The supply of modern weapons is just a business for Western countries. Overseas and European demagogues are not going to perish in a nuclear apocalypse. Therefore, they will swallow the use of any weapon in the current conflict. You see, that's why, for me, this idea, let's save, the, let's allow Putin to save his face, doesn't work. Because what Medvedev says here is exact what amounts to, to preventing the West to save its face. Medvedev, in advance, interprets every compromise as the West will lose its face, they are afraid, they don't want, uh, they don't want uh, to, to perish in a nuclear war, and so on, and so on. Also, as for the background of the war, and I'm talking now as a Leninist communist, my God, here you get, please listen carefully, and then we will slowly come to the end, Putin. Putin, it's incredible. People forgot this, what Putin said on 21st of February, two days before the attack. I found this line shocking. I don't get it how some leftists claim NATO imperialism and so on. Putin openly declares himself a uh, conservative with a goal to destroy European unity. He is systematically supporting all uh, extreme right wing in Europe, Le Pen in France, Salvini in Italy, and so on and so on. And, uh, and uh, uh, the big bad guy for him is Lenin. And it's true. Look at the history. The 20s, okay, there was a civil war, blah, blah, but in 22, when, or when, when the civil war was over, uh, it was a golden era for Ukraine. Under Tsarist Russia, Ukrainian language was not recognized, and so on and so on. In the 20s, uh, Ukraine was admitted as a full nation with all the cultural apparatus. It was an extraordinary time, especially in Ukraine. Like, do you know that for some time they were, it's an incredible story, just the visual arts. At some college in Ukraine, College of Visual Arts, at the same time uh, uh, Malevich and, uh, and uh, Chagall were teaching. They couldn't stand each other and so on. It was a golden era. Then with Stalin the line changed, which is why today in Russia Lenin is out, Stalin is half is half in. And also, this idea of, this is the most dangerous line of argumentation, I don't know if you have it here, this idea of Euro-Asianism. My God, do people know history? At the origin, this is a fascist idea. Do you know that already in the early 20s, among Russian emigration, anti-communist emigration, came this idea that uh, uh, for example, the main person here is, uh, is Ivan Ilyin, who is now quasi-official philosopher. His body was transported from France, brought to Russia, buried with all state honors, and so on and so on. His idea was that 
fascism was good, he supported to the end Mussolini, Hitler in the West, and Hitler, but that their, uh, their uh, fascism was too much under the influence of Western mechanical society, too industrial, and that the only true fascism would have been the Russian fascism as the right balance between Western individualism and uh, Asian this global immersion of the individual into a crowd and so on and so on. Now, okay, here I am. Now I come to my conclusion. Uh, what interests me, and this is the real danger that I see, is that uh, Put, uh, this Putin's line of criticizing the West as decadent, orgy, and so on, uh, gay rights, LGBT+, is more and more in consonance with uh, American new right. My, I use this term with full irony, friend Jordan Peterson from the debate, I was shocked, I didn't know he will do this. You know that he adopted now a pro-Russian position. Uh, but I think in some sense he is right, not in the sense that I agree with him. But I think that American new religious conservatism and what Putin is doing are gradually getting uh, getting uh, coordinated. The Republican Party lawmakers who oppose suppose support for Ukraine are getting stronger and stronger. They do not want to send money abroad when it can be used in the US to fortify the southern border and border and so on and so on. For example, Trump backed candidate PD Vance criticized Ukraine as a corrupt nation run by oligarchs and while he formally condemned Russia's invasion, he also called it insulting and strategically stupid to devote billions of resources to Ukraine while ignoring the problems in our own countries. So, Russian attack on Ukraine and the alt-right revolt in the US are two aspects of the same global movement. If the Western Christian revolt and the Russian anti-European stance will unite into one, this will be a global socio-political catastrophe of, uh, of uh, immeasurable amplitude. For the US and Russia, Russian neoconservatives, uh, Europe is caught in the vortex of self-destructive degeneration, LGBT+, gay marriages, no clear distinction of sexes. Uh, so one cannot but note the obvious imminent inconsistency of the neoconservatives from the Russian ones to American alt-right. While they pretend to deplore the multicultural hedonism uh, and present themselves as the embodiment of traditional Christian values, their words and acts display extraordinary vulgarity, sexism, and racism. Let me just conclude with one 
case. You remember, it occurred back in 2012. In an effort to explain his stance on abortion, Representative Todd Aiken, the Republican Senate nominee from Missouri, provoked ire across the political spectrum by saying that in instances of what he called legitimate rape, women's bodies somehow block an unwanted pregnancy. Responding to this fury, Aiken, how do you pronounce the name? Akin, Aiken, Aiken, okay. Aiken claimed that he has misspoken. He really wanted to say that there are legitimate cases of rape where penetration is really enforced, but that if the victim shows signs of consent, say, getting wet and excited, this then is no longer a legitimate case of rape. I think this confusion reveals the truth. What Aiken really wanted to say is precisely what his misspoken formulation says. In some cases, rape is legitimate since the victim showed signs of participation, which means it really wasn't uh, rape. Leaving behind the obvious falsity and vulgarities of Aiken's reasoning, I want to draw the parallel with the Russian attack on Ukraine since the matter of rape was also evoked from the Russian side. At the press conference on February 7th, Putin noted that the Ukrainian government does not like the Minsk agreement and then added, like it or not, it's your duty, my beauty. The saying has well-known sexual connotations. Putin quoted, was quoting from Sleeping Beauty in a Coffin, a song by a Soviet-era punk group Red Mold, where you have the lines, Sleeping Beauty in a Coffin, I crept up and fucked her, like it or dislike it, sleep my beauty. So there is a clear reference to rape here. There are cases when the rape of a country is legitimate, that is to say, justified. My point is that such male chauvinist obscenities are the not even so hidden truth of the proponents of traditional Christian values. So again, to really conclude, we should accept Peterson's basic premise. Russian attack on Ukraine and the alt-right revolt in the US are two aspects of the same global movement. But does this mean that in contrast to him, to Peterson, we should support the opposite side. Here things get complicated. It is true that if the Western Christian revolt and the Russian anti-European stance will unite into one, this will be a global catastrophe. However, we are still dealing with an antagonism internal to global capitalism. What Peterson attacks is the ultimate consequence of global capitalism itself. We all know the most famous line from Marxist uh, Communist Manifesto. The bourgeoisie, wherever it has got the upper hand, has put an end to all feudal, patriarchal, idyllic relations. All that is solid melts into air, all that is holy is profaned, and man is at least compelled to face with sober senses his real conditions of life. End of quote. I think that what is still ignored 
This is still ignored by those leftist cultural theorists who focus their critique on patriarchal ideology and practice. Is it not time to start to wonder about the fact that the critique of patriarchy was elevated into the main target at the very historical moment, ours, when patriarchy definitely lost its hegemonic role? What becomes of patriarchal family values when a child can sue his parents for neglect and abuse? When family and parenthood are de jure reduced to temporarily dissolvable contract between independent individuals. So the culture war raging in the developed West now, in the States, in Europe, is, I think, a false war. A war between two versions of the same global capitalist system. It unrestrained pure version, which is this insistence on infinite dynamics, plasticity, LGBT, reinvent your identity all the time, and its neo-fascist conservative version, which tries to unite capitalist dynamism with more traditional values. The paradox is here double. The Western political correctness is a displacement of the good old class struggle. The liberal elite pretends to protect the threatened racial and sexual minorities uh, in order to obfuscate the basic fact of their privileged economic and power position. And this lie allows the alt-right populists to present themselves as a defense of the real working class against the big corporations and the deep state elites. The paradox is thus that today's populist conservatives are more revolutionary than the politically correct liberals who are not afraid to call for social order and even police oppression when they feel this is needed. Like we often hear the complaint, where were the police and National Guard on January 6, 2021? The implication to be drawn is not just that left and right are today outdated notions, but that both poles of today's Cold War can only be properly grasped as a displaced class struggle. Neither of them really stands for those uh, exploited. And again, this is our tragic predicament today. You remember, I was, of course, my eyes were glued to the screen of, on uh, January 6th uh, of the previous year. You remember the crowd invading capital, capital. But uh, what shocked me so much is how many of my leftist friends in the United States and in Europe were crying, looking at the, They said, what is going on? We, the people, should be doing this. It's beautiful to watch it, but the wrong guys are doing it. That's, the, that's, our, that's our predicament today. I think what, again, I, listen, I even sometimes listen to, to, uh, to Steve Bannon's podcasts or whatever. And did you notice how he's doing almost the same thing as Putin? He begins... Like, 
if he has a one-hour podcast talk, with the first 20 minutes, I almost fully agree. He describes how the big corporation, state, employees, ordinary, blah, 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 all that. Then, of course, things take a strange turn. It's the same I heard from my friends in Moscow who are like with one leg in prison already but with the other leg still running around that Putin is doing the same. He doesn't have only Dugin and this religious orthodox maniacs. Putin also mobilized a group of young Marxists who are providing him a more leftist third world line. They are telling, they provided him with this line, Russia is really defending the world from Western imperialist colonization. We are on the side of all those exploited in the third world, and so on, and so on. And uh, I hope you are aware of this situation, how incredibly successful this Russian propaganda is. Not in the West, but in Latin America, in many parts of, uh, 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 of uh, Asia, uh, uh, Africa, and so on, and so on. So I think that uh, maybe this is the crucial dilemma today. Uh, like, uh, our situation today is the one of uh, uh, crisis of a system itself. What conservatives got right is that uh, this Fukuyama ideal of liberal democratic capitalism is in full crisis. In the sense of, you know what is for me the most ominous case? In England, in France, in United States, uh, you have now protests which are no longer like in some parts of Eastern Europe, protests for true democracy. No. They, they articulate a doubt in our version of liberal democracy itself. And the tragedy is that there is no way to, to give, to articulate in organized political way this rage. And with this, I want to conclude. Uh, we are back at the beginning of European history. Uh, my friend, although a right-winger, he's not stupid, Peter Sloterdijk, wrote a wonderful book, Being and Rage, Sein und Zorn, uh, of course, an ironic paraphrase of Heidegger's Being in Time, where he said, what's at the beginning, at least in our mythic view of the Western culture, it's Homer Iliad. And what is the first line of Iliad? A call to the dead goddess, whatever, to allow him to do a poem on the rage of Achilles, which brought blah, blah, blah. Today we have even a much more dangerous rage, this dissatisfaction. And what's really tragic is that the left is losing it. I think that, I agree here with the guy whom I criticized briefly, Varoufakis, I think that capitalism is changing already into something 
different. And either we will invent, I don't like to use the word communism, it's too crazy, but a really new social order to deal with the ongoing problems, or a new form of fascism, of, sorry, of neo-feudalism, let's call it, will take over. So, you know, what, again, what I would be really, my nightmare is, and Trump is already sending signals and so on, even uh, Bolsonaro is more friendly for, <laughs> towards, uh, towards Putin and so on. Uh, this pact between European and like, wherever, new populist conservatives and Russia and so on. That's, that's the danger. And I don't think we are taking seriously this danger because we too much still believe in liberal democracy. I appreciate liberal democracy. It's a wonderful thing, but today it's a crisis because the only way to confront all the problems we have today is to make a step uh, beyond. And that's the reason of my pessimism. You know why? To conclude, uh, I don't, you know, in good old Marxist, all liberal times, we still could rely on historical faith necessity, like this Marxist faith of history is moving towards progress and so on. No, now we have to act against history. Historical tendency is towards a catastrophe. What will happen, I don't know. But I prefer to be a pessimist to, in order to awaken us. Sorry if I was too long. Thanks very much. So, stop, please. We don't have time for this. I said some things which may be very problematic for you. First, about, I'm not bluffing, you know, I'm not reading, apropos Russia, Western propaganda. I, for very conformist reasons, this will, I hope, amuse you, which shows the depth of my depravity. When I was in a high school in mid-60s in Slovenia, uh, we had a... English was obligatory, first, second language, and then we had the choice of another. It was either French or German or Russian. I've chosen Russian for disgusting reasons. I, my idea was, it's a cold war, one side will win, I want to be sure to speak the language of the winner. <laughs> but now it comes good because, you know, I am not, I am not just... Uh, 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 reading about it. I listen all the time to Russian media, and it's even more horrible <laughs> than what this report. And the second thing with this, I really conclude, uh, some pragmatic friends of mine are telling me, but don't take all this stuff about Russian mission, holy war, don't take it seriously, these are just words. What they really want is just a small part of Ukraine. No. Words, if we have something to learn, is that words are not re never only words. Take the case, I'm not comparing nonetheless uh, Putin with Hitler, but take the case of Germany. Do you know that when Hitler took power in 33, 
This was the predominant attitude, unfortunately, among the Jews there. He just needs this rhetoric to take power once he will establish, make a deal with him. No. Words matter. So I don't believe in this Putin is just saying this or and his ideologies in reality. No. Wars are never simply pragmatic. You always, how should I put it, get caught into your own words. So please counter-attack. I would like to hear your counter-opinion. Or I hope I made my position clear about LGBT plus and so on, all that. I totally, sorry, I totally support them. In my country, I also here and there fight for them, with them, and so on. I'm just saying that the ideology which not always, but sometimes accompanies LGBT plus, this simple reliance of uh, 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 the choice of our sex is our free decision, and then this game of plasticity, you know, in the sense of, oh, that's the true freedom. Today I'm gay, tomorrow I'm hetero, next day I'm bisexual, whatever. This is so... This is so discriminatory and discriminatory and uh, and uh, humiliating for LGBT people themselves. You know how traumatic. For example, I know an example. There was a movie made on it in Belgium where a, a, a boy wanted to become a lady, and it was. So traumatic for him, although he, she had the support from parents, everybody was good and so on. And of course, it, in some sense, it's a choice. It's not biologically determined. But it's not a simple conscious choice in the sense of, oh, that's how I feel now and so on and so on. You know that if you are a trans, if you do the operation, you know how painful are these operations? This is traumatic. This means you feel the urge to do it, which means, of course, it's your choice, but not a simple choice in the sense, oh, my God, look, I like boys, I like girls, I like trans people, let's play all of them. You are ready to stake your survival on it. So that's what I'm pleading here for. It's not biology. But it's also not this superficial how I feel, I declare, and so on, and so on. Do you know that, yes, LGBT plus people are free, but they, they are maybe the most free people among us, and they, pay, and they pay the price for it. You know that here I accept this paradox of true freedom is not this superficial freedom of choice, like let's go to a patisserie, should be cheesecake or chocolate cake or strawberry cake. True freedom is experienced usually even as necessity. Like imagine LGBT plus boy, at least biologic looks, no. He experiences deep his identity as either third one or uh, woman or whatever, something third, and in some sense, he has no choice. But again, this is, this is true freedom. It's like love. I always like this example. Love is 
has to be free. I cannot order you to fall in love. But isn't it that love is freedom experienced as the utter necessity? Like, when you are truly in love, you cannot say, oh, this person whom I love, it's too difficult, confused, let me choose another object. No, you cannot go out. Love is your fate. And precisely as such, it is free. So, as somebody trained with, in psychoanalysis, the theoretically only, you know, no, I would never do practice. Some students years ago wanted me to, do their psycho, to be their psychoanalyst, and you know what was my reaction? I told them, if you want me to be your analyst, then you are really crazy, <laughs> you need one. But what I'm saying is that, is that uh, you know, psycho, Freudian psychoanalysis give the thick background of all the traumatic dimension of the topic done by LGBT+. But again, I, I, I don't like this idea, which sometimes you can feel it, that basically sexuality is free in, the, in this superficial sense. You flirt with this, with that option, and then the evil patriarchy comes and tells you no binary, this, that, and so on and so on. No, Freud was right. We are extraordinary, complex, divided persons, and... The, the great lesson of Jacques Lacan is that there is always a minimal gap between what you, desire, what you want and what you really desire. It's quite often that what you declare that you want, it's part of a struggle against what unconsciously you desire. And I think out of my respect for LGBT+, and so on, people. Uh, to conclude, yes, maybe it was, then I will really stop if you are stupid enough to believe, but I will. <laughs> no, uh, uh, you know what attracts me? And I was so proud when LGBT plus many people, okay, now it's more complex. It's LGBTQ, whatever, and so on. Uh, 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 you know what's my basic idea? and disagreement with some strength. How do you, maybe if you read some of my books, you must know this line, how do you define the plus in LGBTQ? Either in an empirical way, which is, maybe there are other identities that the list is never complete, so plus stands for, let's see, if you say, I'm neither L nor G, B, T, blah, blah, the space is open for you, but I propose a much more radical reading. As subject, we are basically this plus itself, escaping every identification. That's why, I'm sorry, I didn't go more into philosophy, that's why modern subjectivity is more feminine. And that's the great thing about psychoanalysis. What do I mean by this? You know, uh, Hysteria for Freud, and Lacan points this out, it's the basic form of critique of ideology in practice. Why? Because, as Lacan points out in a wonderful way, the basic mechanism of ideology is ideological symbolic identification. The existing order tells you, gives you a space of what you are. You are a man, a professor, or whatever. 
But the original hysterical question is, why am I what you are saying that I am? The doubt into your symbolic identity provided by society. That's the be this is why, in contrast to those who think that the Cartesian cogito, this pure modern subject, is masculine, no, it's feminine, and we don't have time to go into this, but this is a wonderful topic. You know that, that's why, already in his age, early 17th century, when Descartes was extremely popular among women, who immediately got this, cogito, aha, it's not men, there is a space for us. And women, not just Queen Christina of that stupid movie with Greta Garbo of Sweden, but it was extraordinary what movement among women was triggered. And uh, all this is uh, so important today. If we live also psychologically in an era of paradoxes, my God, it's permissiveness which is turning around into strict regulation with all the politically correct rules and so on and so on. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, with all this focus on, again, permissiveness and pleasure, what we get is more, more than ever impotence, frigidity, and so on and so on. Sex is a big mess. We have to accept this. In itself, it's a big mess. And here, although at other points I disagree with her, I, here I agree with Judith Butler, where she pointed out how the basic, this would be the minimum of what you mentioned, uh, this surplus enjoyment as opposed to pleasure. You know that sexuality always gets entangled in these paradoxes. Your desire is repressed, but then it turns around into the repression of, uh, into desire for repression itself. The very mode you try to repress your desire turns into an additional source of enjoyment and so on and so on. The th and I think here, precisely in today's mess of sexual identities, psychoanalysis is needed more than ever. Now, it's really time for me to stop. Yeah. <laughs> My favorite, it's Diet Coke with uh, cherry taste, because this cherry, this is a nice example of this rigid designator. It's, you recognize that it's totally chemical. I don't see any link between how real cherries taste, and that's why I like it. Uh, okay, totally. <laughs> okay, thank, thank you, Slav. Please. We've got... We, we have some time still for. We've, oh, we have. We've got. We've got time. I mean, we have to be done by nine because we're both guesting on Steve Bannon's podcast. Um, let, that's a joke. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, we have. We have. We have. You know, 20, 25 minutes for for question and answer. There are uh, there are microphones up front. Or why don't we use this center one? So, um, if you have a question, uh, why don't we line up at the microphone and? Yep. But didn't you tell me there are more microphones? Or There's one over there too, but let's, in the interest of getting it. Okay. Yeah, you, yeah. 
Wait, so, yeah, okay. Okay, is, it, is the mic working? Testing, testing, one, two, three, can you hear me? Okay. Please. So I guess I, I guess um, I noticed, although I'm often proclaimed anti-feminist, but it makes me very sad. I don't see. From, is there any woman in the line? <laughs> no. You know why I'm saying this seriously? Because, for example, I'm very good friend with many black people, and we have this type of wonderful relationship where. I don't dare to give you examples. All the time we exchange dirty, racist, innuendos, jokes, and so on. And we love each other for that, you know. And so once I was with to a black friend of mine, I was tired, I was just polite, and he was in a panic. He told me, are you mad at me or what? Where are your dirty jokes? So uh, what I'm saying is that nonetheless, uh, uh, you know, a proof that I am a feminist, it's a purely theoretical one. I am a Hegelian, and in the last 20, 30 years, practically all good books on Hegel are written by women. Rebecca Comey, even Judith Butler's Something About Desire, her first book, very good one, is on Hegel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I'm sorry, I'm again getting lost, please. That's thing, one, two, three. Uh, yeah, but do, do you in... Be, be, testing, one, two, three. Do you hear him? Okay, okay. Right, so, so, I guess my, my, my question would be, so for a little context, in, say, medieval society, you sort of had, um, you would have, you would, you would have, you'd have, the concept of the carnival was a very common sort of thing. Carnival. And, yes, and then you had a sort of similar things in similar societies, like in ancient Rome, I think I've heard yeah. the anecdote of how they'd, they'd have a fe festival or something where they'd make the slave the emperor, the king for a day, and at the end of the day they'd kill him. So you sort of had this sort of um, publicization and sort of social acceptance of these sort of bizarre, irrational, into the sort of form of public release. Do you think that the sort, do you think that a sort of modern sort of sense of trying, sort of like 15th, 16th, 17th century, trying to cut, trying to lift the average person out, outside of that carnival, do you think that the sort of 20th and 21st century has sort of seen the sort of seen the sort of carnival and sort of this very sort of strict regime that you might see spoken about in someone like Foucault. Do you, th do you think that the 20th and 21st centuries are sort of that, the carnival and this sort of order that we tried to create without it are sort of converged and merged? Do you think that the sort of, sh sort of shame that, that is that sort of is being seen on this sort of level, on the public level, is at those, at the very consequences of those merging? It's a very precise question. What, uh, I'm still in some sense, sorry if I disappoint you here, uh, attached to modernity. I still think 
maybe not early modernity, but French Revolution is a mega event for me and so on. So my point would be that already what happened in the 20th century was a kind of a dark underside of Carnival. Do you know, probably, uh, did you read uh, the book, it's a classic on Carnival, among others, by Michael Bachtin uh, uh, on François Rabelais. He elaborated this notion of Carnival, but my friend, the German art theorist, Boris Groys, recently got hold of archives of Bachtin. He survived the purges because he moved to Kazan, some smaller city, and the big Moscow bureaucracy forgot about him. And what's so fascinating is that, you know, what's the uh, unanimous message from his private notes? That uh, for him, the big carnival that he didn't dare to mention were the Stalinist purges. Because it was, you know, today you are a king, member of Politburo, tomorrow you are an English spy, a British spy. It was, uh, it, uh, and even in, uh, there is also a carnival aspect. Some friends of mine, black people, are exploring it. Ku Klux Klan in its, sorry for this horrible term, I mean it ironically, golden era in 1920s. You know, it was the, the end of the week carnival for the white people. Let's have some fun. Let's lynch some black guys. Re let's rape some black women and so on and so on. So uh, I, I think that uh, I always found it problematic to oppose this rigid order of a society and this a moment of freedom where the king is a servant, the servant is the king, all that stuff. I think that in most of the time, carnivals were simply a kind of a libidinal supplement in an intermediate way, even supporting the existing order, which you should not forget this. Don't idealize medieval times. There are many things we don't know. I mean, we don't know, but how brutal oppression was there? I mean, you know, sometimes we idealize them as a kind of a small organic community. Extremely brutal times. So what I am, of course, there are attempts to see even in mass sport events and so on, new forms of carnival. But, uh, uh, but uh, for, for me, again, the least I would say is that there is also a very dark side to, to Carnival. For example, in Nazi literature, when, no, it's too crazy to say that's too horrible, that Auschwitz was a Carnival. But the way Kristallnacht, you know, in when, 38, when Jews were beaten, some of them lynched and so on, has a clear structure of a Carnival. It even up to a point, as is typical for Carnival, ran out of control. And that's the very sad thing. It wasn't that it was planned by Goebbels or whom. It was, but even they were surprised by how it exploded. So again, I'm just saying don't also don't idealize the Carnival. 
The carnival is for me quite often that part, or another element, it's not the same as carnival, I know, but one of the nicest memories from communism that I have is, I didn't like it, but uh, how, it's not carnival, but the role played there by political jokes, jokes against those in power. I always had a suspicion, although some people were arrested for telling them, that uh, those in power were fully aware that it has this carnivalesque notion of, you know, if you don't allow people to let their steam off, how to call it, through telling jokes, then you will have real protests. So it's not true, but there is a rumor. It's not true. But it's the right insight that, that secret police departments in uh, 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 police in Eastern Europe, communist times, had secret department fabricating jokes. Not jokes against the Western decadence, but jokes against their own politics. The idea was allow, give these people to start a way to express their anger to, you know, and so on and so on. And again, with uh, Stalinism, it's absolutely clear, this functioning, this carnivalesque dimension. Especially when the purges got serious. The true Stalinist purges were 34, 36. And it's pure carnival in what sense? In a uh, do you know that, for example, in those two years, like 70% of the Central Committee members were liquidated, more than half of the uh, headquarters of the army top generals were liquidated. Situation was the worst. It's very interesting to know this in Ukraine, where that's what I call a perch. In 34, 1934, Ukrainian Central Committee had 200 members, Central Committee of the party. You know how many of them were alive three years later? No, two years later, three. That's what I call a perch. So, again, I didn't answer all the depth of your question, I know. I'm just saying that Bakhtin himself is misread when he is presented as the guy who, as the guy who uh, somehow just celebrated carnival. No, he was well aware of the dark aspects of a carnival of this other side. Otherwise, I'm not a, I am an idiot, but not a complete idiot, which means that I am well aware of the finesse of your question, the other aspects. But now, yeah, let's, yeah, let's, I will let's, just limit myself to this general point. Don't overestimate some kind of a, you know, non-emancipatory power of carnival. And this is why my, this is why I'm also not so fascinated, you know, we had not so much here, but in Europe. You know, these big populist movements, like uh, uh, two, a couple of years ago in Istanbul, one million people protesting against Erdogan, or in Egypt, and so on. I always have a deep mistrust against these big million people there. What interests me is, how to say, after you get drunk, the morning after, no? How this energy unleashed is then translated into a new order. 
usually carnivals don't produce a new order. They are just a momentary explosion, and then things return to the old order. And that's what I don't like. I think that the really difficult thing is not to organize one million people shouting there. No, but to, to, make, to make a change felt when things return to normal, to establish a new normal. That's why, years ago, you remember the movie, uh, how is that, my God, the movie about... V for Vendetta? Sorry? V for Vendetta? Yeah. My big point, I repeated it many times in my books, is I would kill my mother, sold her into slavery, to see, bad taste, I'm sorry, Vendetta Part 2. Did you see the movie? At the end, triumph, people break the police, they won. Okay, but what happened then? How is the new power structured? That's the big problem today. Okay, let's let's sorry. let's see if we can we can get. A I'm sorry, more I will be more. much faster. I yeah. understand. I'm sorry. Thank you, I'm sir. Sorry. I mean, I will have to give you a quicker answer. Sorry. Yeah. Please. Howdy. I've uh, I've got more of sort of a foreign policy question. And so for me, when you were talking about um, about Russia and Ukraine, it didn't feel to me as though you really adequately addressed the you know the consequences of a more confrontational policy against Russia, which. You know, as you know, you said words are not just words, should always be taken seriously, especially in Putin's case. And he has, and his, uh, his government has brought up nuclear war, mutually assured destruction on many occasions now. And I was just wondering, how in your mind is it, is it considered moral, or could it be considered moral to advocate for a confrontational stance against Russia when the possible consequences of such a stance Sorry, are so... Uh, please, just repeat the last words. How, how could it be considered moral to adopt a confrontational stance against Russia when the possible consequences of adopting that stance are so high, you know, i.e. mutually assured destruction? But uh, I totally agree with this. But uh, why do you think that... Isn't it that the way I see it, that uh, Russia started the topic of using tactical nuclear weapons and all that stuff and so on and so on. And I think, I, uh, first, I don't believe that Putin is a madman and so on, who just waits to press the button. I think he's precisely playing on this fear. My God, what if I go crazy and so on and so on. So, uh, you know what's my problem? Uh, many of my friends by this line, whenever NATO does something, it must be bad or whatever. But uh, uh, my problem here is, okay, I'll tell you this. I, we can talk for hours because I'm also very critical of Ukrainians. First, the mistakes, and it's... Uh, May, uh, uh, two weak word mistakes they made. Point two, this is the darkest part. How? Even now, the West is already, everything is set in motion to prepare, uh, whatever you call it, I hate these words, neoliberal colonization from the West of Ukraine. 
Do you know that, according to some sources, one-third of best Ukrainian land is already owned by big American agricultural companies and so on? They are putting terrible pressure now already on Ukraine, this open totally to free market, blah, blah, all that. So I'm well aware on this. You know what's the danger I see here? Some of my leftist friends who say, Okay, if you attack, uh, if we give arms to Ukraine, it means we support our military industry, blah, blah. I ask them a very simple question. So, what should be our message to Ukrainians? Sometime, the, 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 what my friends are saying, telling me, sounds like, okay, the attack is horrible, but... On behalf of global peace and so on, Ukrainians should suffer a little bit, make a compromise and so on and so on. You know, who went here to the end, and it cost me his friendship more or less, Yanis Varoufakis. I was shocked when Taliban won in Afghanistan. He uh, posted... Uh, Tweet or whatever. Okay. But his point was it's a great vic defeat of American imperialism. It's a great victory. Then he says, okay, women will suffer, we should help them, but nonetheless. So his message is that we should say to Afghani women, yes, it's horrible, but sorry. There is a higher interest of defeating American imperialism, blah, 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 just suffer. This is, for me, the most horrible thing to do. For example, when people also, some of my leftist friends, condemned, uh, Nor uh, sorry, not Norway, Finland and Sweden, their desire to join NATO. I, again, my point is, and I know I have high political connections there, they were scared like shit. So, what should we tell them? Sorry, guys, you, you are in danger, but you know we don't want to support our military-industrial complex or what. So, so, I think that this should be an ABC of progressive politics. Never elevate your cause into a big cause, for which then you demand subordinated group to sacrifice, uh, to, to sacrifice their interests. No, no, I, I'm, again, I'm very critical here of Ukrainians. But, uh, uh, okay, I ask you, and sincerely, it's not rhetorics. What, yes, what should the West have done, Western Europe, when Russia attacked Ukraine? That's a, a big question, but I just, I, I don't see how I think how the suffering the West, of Ukrainians so, yes. can be can be put, uh, you know, how, how we can say that it's better to have the whole world suffer than to just have Ukraine suffer. I agree, it's horrible for that to happen. Um, but I, you, when but you're talking you about world war here, there is already in what you said some implications, that, factual implications that I find problematic. Uh, why do you think it would have stopped in? Ukraine. All right, and well, I just like to say also, I'm not talking about what you said with Afghanistan, where it's you know this conceptual American empire that we're fighting. You know, this is talking about something that could happen to everybody, right? Uh, I, I think that uh, then you know the possibility of nuclear confrontation should be avoided at all costs. 
And if that means not necessarily giving Russia part of Ukraine, but that means adopting a, a more peaceable, you know, stance ready to negotiate, I think that that's what has to be done. Uh, why? Okay, I hear your point. Of course, we are all afraid of uh, not only of nuclear war, but even larger European war and so on and so on. But uh, the but uh, the problem for me in Ukraine is, is nonetheless that I see in what Putin is doing, it's not just Ukraine. It's, he began in, uh, in where, not Chechnya, then it was uh, Gruzia, Georgia, and so on. It goes around, he openly says the greatest tragedy of the 20th century was the disintegration of the Soviet Union. And he is openly saying, defining Russian sphere. And uh, I, uh, I, I think that first we should clarify what Russia is. What I, where I disagree with some of my leftist friends is that they are so obsessed by NATO and so on that automatically you have to be, if you are opposed to big Western imperialism, you somehow have to be at least partially on the good side. But my point is very brutal one. I'm not comparing Putin with Hitler, but what would you then say, uh, uh, Germany 1939? Let's give, isn't this the same logic? Let's give to Hitler... Uh, 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 Czechoslovakia just to keep peace in Europe and then it No, because, I mean, Hitler didn't have the capacity to, Hitler didn't have the capacity to level New York with, you know, the push of a button. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay, I agree but uh, but uh, again, my problem is uh, so what's your idea? It's just that let's make compromises, compromises to, I, I, I think this doesn't work. It works in the short term, maybe, but then it goes on, it goes on, it goes, it goes on. I'm absolutely fanatically to avoid and with peace, but okay, let's be concrete. Now, even Putin is giving hints, now maybe that it's more or less a stalemate, uh, 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 kind of a, in, in, uh, in Ukraine, uh, uh, Ukrainians recapture some parts of it. Yes, there are now maybe conditions for some negotiated peace. But are you aware that these conditions were, ne were created by Western help? Without Western help, Ukraine would have collapsed in a, in a week or two. So I think... At least, let's admit this, I don't see in the West some mega, in spite of rhetoric, occasional, some mega rhetoric. You know, even I think, do you remember immediately when Russia announced the attack? You know what was first Biden's, and I'm no sympathizer of Biden's reaction, it was incredible. When he was asked what will be the countermeasures, Biden said, it depends how radical Russian interventions will be. If they want just part of the Southeast, 
it's one thing if they want all of it. So it's incredible how Biden showed immediately an openness to compromise and so on and so on. Okay. I, I just don't accept this uh, obsession with Russia has to, has to save its face and so on and so on. But, uh, okay, one thing, okay, let's not lose time, but to give you an example where I think Ukraine should be brutally criticized. You know how Ukraine reacted to the fact, do you remember that this year's Nobel Peace Prize was given to some Ukrainian charity organization and some Belarusian and some Russian who are half arrested there, really fighting for peace in Russia. Ukraine protested, claiming that although they protest the war in Russia, but they didn't really achieve anything, it's, it's a shame to give Peace Nobel Prize to citizens of a state which is now attacking Ukraine. This is sheer madness, I think. Ukrainians here spoke the same language as Putin and his ideologists. They spoke as if it's a conflict, and here I also disagree with Ukraine. You know, they like to speak about, we are defending Europe. I, it's like Europe against Russia. They, they speak almost the same language as Dugin, Putin ideologist here. No, we should insist on it. This is a struggle inherent to Europe itself. We have our own fascists and so on, neo-fascists, internal to Russia itself and so on and so on. If we lose this universal approach and go into this water, you know, Ukraine is defending Europe and so on, we are lost. Okay, yeah, let, let's let's uh, let's end on universalism. Yeah. Let's let's uh, okay. Sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah. I know, I know, I know more. I know more people have questions. I'm sorry, we only have this. We're done at nine. It's already nine oh one. So we're gonna have to we're gonna have to okay, cut it cut it short. Take, uh, okay, I will try but, to be short. You know what? My bad taste joke here. I will try to give you. We I need, I need that. I need that button. You know uh, what I'm tempted to do? It's a bad joke to give you this pseudo-deep Zen Buddhist answers, you know, clap with one hand or whatever. <laughs> okay, okay, please. We, we, I will try to be fast. Yeah, uh, let me start off by saying... <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, let me start off by saying it's a great honor for me to meet someone of your renown on the Problem left. Sorry? Oh, uh, Listen, can you let's, hear me? Wait, we're, yeah. we're going we're gonna to have to end it, and then why don't you come up, we'll talk, and we'll... T we'll talk to him. I got a brief question, please. Okay. Real quick. Quick. How do we both uh, show solidarity with people in the third world and the imperial periphery and sort of kind of concentrate our efforts on fighting the surge in fascism at home? Sorry, I didn't get it. Did you get it? Can you say it once more then? Yeah. How do we as Western leftists both show solidarity with people in the third world and, you know, fight imperialism? and also combat the growing tide of fascism at home? Like, how, like, is there a contradiction between the two, or is there not? And if not, which one should we concentrate our efforts on? You know, this is a big problem, but look, it was the same situation at a different level, totally. You know that uh, Germany and Japan were playing already this game. When Japan occupied in, when, 39, 40, whatever, most of the Far East there, 
they constituted some kind of anti-imperialist league. When uh, 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 Germans bribed some uh, peaceniks in the United States here and some leftists in England claiming we should not fight imperialist wars and so on. This is the, this is the, this is the tragical situation. But nonetheless, you can, even if American intervention in World War II A was the intervention of an imperialist superpower, which point two gave an incredible boost to your not only military industry, but to your economy. Look at the history of the United States. The Great Recession crisis was not over in 39-40. It's only during the World War II years that American economy really, really exploded. But uh, I, my answer to you would be this one. Yes, all that talk about uh, anti-imperialism, but who are till now these great anti-imperialist uh, uh, friends of Russia? It is Iran. Sorry, I there. It's tremendously important what is happening there. It's an incredible thing how women are on the top of an authentic revolution. Something broke in Iran. Russia's, it's an incredibly important event. And Russia is on that side. Then North Korea is sending uh, volunteers. Then, uh, then uh, uh, some other similar countries. Taliban, of course, uh, Afghanistan, and so on. On the other hand, I'm not such a pessimist. If you ask me how to fight imperialism, there are many states, even now, where I'm not a total pessimist, where leftists are in power and are doing a relatively good job. For example, my supreme example, I don't know if you agree, is always, because I have friends there, Linera Morales, Vice President Bolivia. In 10 years of Morales power, they did a true miracle. The standard of living of ordinary people is much higher. That's why you remember there was a coup d'etat. And then in so-called free elections, although controlled by the army, Morales forces came back to power. It's extraordinary what is happening now in Latin America. Leftism there is not just those who screw the cap up, like Nicaragua, Venezuela, and no, uh, uh, Cuba, with all respect for Cuba, but they screwed it up, basically, no? No, it's new countries like, okay, Chile, it's problematic, they lost the, they lost the referendum for constitution, but it's Colombia, it's uh, Bolivia, okay, we'll see. What I'm saying is that uh, I totally agree with you that the real test for the West is not to miss this moment, to take, to take, how should I put it, settling, getting rid of its own imperialist legacy really effectively. If not, the West will become, maybe survive as an island. So I totally agree with you. I even written yeah, a text on it. So, that's, yeah. that's, that's, let's, 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 end, let's end there. That's, we, we, we're way over. We have to end. Thank you, Slavo. Thank you, everybody. For that.